The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we have before us your ancient word here, and we do pray that you would open it, speak, and show us Christ in it. At first glance, it seems hard to find him. It's just about a king named Saul and his folly. Lord, help us to find him and to see where he is pointed towards, even in this passage, and to be encouraged to reach out to him in the way that you mean for us to approach him, in the way that finds him, in a way that allows us to enjoy him and through him you in all of your goodness and glory. Make that point clear this morning, Lord, to us from this lengthy passage. We are dependent on you to help us to hear it right, help us to understand it properly, to sort through all the many details, to remain focused. We are are dependent on you in so many different places. So I pray, Lord, would you send the same Spirit who, who inspired this Word. It is the Word of God come from you through a human hand by the power of God the Spirit. Would you send that same spirit who inspired it now to this room, to this place, to touch individuals that we would hear it? And hearing, then heed. Lord, help us, your people, your church. Help me to express what sometimes feels like confusing thoughts to me. Help me to keep my, my words straight and clear. Over all of this, God, where we make mistakes, where we fall asleep, where we get distracted, where our cell phone inadvertently goes off, where where all these things happen, would you be and would you help us to remember that you are God? And in the end, it all works out perfectly gloriously. We pray now that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, and you're going to teach us something here in the passage about how you do that and how you do it in our lives, in our church. But we know in the end, we stop praying that because it actually comes. We don't pray that prayer forever. It's temporary. Your kingdom comes and your will is done as heaven and earth are joined together. The dwelling of God becomes with man. Remind us of that. And for those here who aren't going to be in that place, would you convict them that they may listen to what this passage says, to the warning and the offer in it, and would turn to you and find a new eternity by faith. Lord, open your word and speak through it to us. Have your way with us. Be God over us. Be God over your church. Exalt Christ by the power of the Spirit through your word. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the last half of 1 Samuel chapter 14 where we find the rest of the story, the rest of what happened on that day of battle that we looked at at the beginning of the chapter where Jonathan performed such heroics that the the son of King Saul, Jonathan, 
He took a step of faith in confronting the Philistines who were in the land. There was a, you recall, there was a massive Philistine army parked right in the middle of Israel. Raiding parties had gone out from it everywhere. And Saul was opposite them in a world of trouble. In chapter 13, Saul had disobeyed God at Gilgal, and so God had withdrawn from him, had stepped away from him as the prophet Samuel got up and left without offering the peace offering, without telling him the word from the Lord. Silence from God, no peace. God's gone. And there's left Saul with 600 men, all frightened, very few weapons, no plan, no power, and from a human perspective, no hope. Except for this one guy, Jonathan, son of Saul, who saw something else, saw someone else. He saw a God who, as he said in verse 6 last week, is mighty to save with many or with a few. It's not really relevant because it's not about the people. This is a God who can save despite the circumstances and actually often seeks to save because the circumstances seem hopeless, because it highlights something about him. So Jonathan sees that God and says, maybe the Lord would choose to work for us today. And he takes a step of faith, asking God to give him further direction if he wants him to advance ahead. He takes a step of faith. God gives him further direction. He takes another step of faith, climbs this hill, and attacks the army by himself. He has a faithful armor bearer who trails behind him, finishing off the victims. But it's a one-man show. And God uniquely, powerfully anoints him, gives him great power, and then sends a supernatural panic. It says there are several times in verse 15 that a panic set on the camp, and the Philistines begin to break up and flee. And then we find that Saul and the others, back safely in camp, see this and begin to wonder what to do. And they start to inquire of the Lord, to pray. But they run out of patience for that. Saul says in verse 19, he tells the priest to stop praying, which is what he means by that, take, take out your hand, withdraw your hand. He's asked the priest to, to seek an answer from the Lord. Should we attack or not? Never mind, we're going in. And they went in, and the end result was, as verse 23 puts it, so the Lord saved Israel that day. A remarkable work of God on behalf of the people of God, doing what seemed impossible, all started by Jonathan because he trusted him. Which leads us directly to verse 24 in our passage for today, the rest of the story. And where the first half of the chapter highlights the positive in Jonathan, the second half of the story highlights the negative in Saul. So we'll have to see, to to see some of the negative, we'll have to kind of keep in mind the first part of it, the things we looked at last week, because it shows us what Saul should be. And it gives us an important point about where Saul was when this stuff that we're going to look at today happened, where he was mentally and Uh, that kicked off these events. We need to keep that in mind. But the rest of this chapter shows us a lot about Saul. And it's a long chapter. There are many verses here. I'm going to read them all. We're going to be focusing on on 24 up through 46, but we're going to read all the way through the end because there are a couple of important points to note there too. There's going to be a warning for us here. And and a hope. There's, There's a warning Last week we were called to follow Jonathan, and you might guess if this week is about Saul's problems, we're going to be warned to not follow Saul. That's what we're going to look at. Let me read the chapter starting in verse 24. I'm going to start in verse 23, actually, because they are connected. 
Some of your translations will show the connection better than others, but they are connected. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so, or for, Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people had come to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know, and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son shall be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim, one stone or the other. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. 
Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahmaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Nair, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Nair, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Word of the Lord for Samuel 14. Verses 23 and, and 24 go together, and, and some of your English translations show that a little bit, but the, the flow of it is the Lord saved Israel that day, even though the men of Israel were hard-pressed. Why? Because of this oath that I'm about to tell you about. Beginning of the verse, they were hard-pressed. End of the verse, they tasted no food. So what we're getting here is we're winding back into the previous verses to get the, the rest of the story. This happened in the camp before all the people went out under the attack, which is why Jonathan didn't hear about it. He wasn't there, you'll recall. So he addressed all the people. And get the flow of the story. This is important. What was he doing last week, right before he sent them out? He's praying. O priest, ask the Lord what we should do. Never mind, we don't have time for that. Let me issue an oath. That right there is the sermon. I'm going to spend, you know, another hour and a half elaborating on that. But that is the sermon. He's praying, and in an unheard of, unheard of Old Testament endeavor, says to the priest, in the process of seeking, I mean, the priest is before the ark of God, wearing the ephod with his hand in the pocket, asking the Lord, what should we do? And the king says, never mind, I know. Holy smokes. But he does have enough time to gather everybody around and issue an oath. He sends them out, cursed, be the man who eats food until evening. He pronounces a fast, which is not an unheard of thing. Fasting is fine in the Bible. Common in the Bible. It's okay. And he sends them forward. And the result, the men had been hard-pressed that day. None of the people had tasted food. This was an all-day-long battle. And if you compare all the geography here, it spread over 20 miles of the hill country of central Israel. So they're not fighting the whole way. They're chasing them. But if you just walk 20 miles a day, let alone running and chasing and then fighting and all the adrenaline dealing with, no, no kidding, the text keeps saying, the oath held us from food. The people were faint, verse 28. Verse 31, they struck them down and the people were very faint. Yes, sure they were. Except for Jonathan. As he pressed forward, now joined by all the Israelites, they came to the forest where, verse 26, the honey was dropping. They come to a land that's flowing with honey. And Jonathan reaches out and tastes some taste of the bountiful provision of the Lord. And his eyes are brightened by it, and everybody else on oath holds back and faints. 
much to his benefit. And then he finds out about the oath. And his response is interesting, especially given where the story goes. He uses a word to describe his father. It says this in verse 29. He uses a word there that's used twice back in Joshua 7 to describe the man Achan after the battle of Ai. Remember that story? After destroying Jericho, the Israelites had thought they had a kind of a, a little skirmish at this little town of Ai, but they lost and are crushed by it and wonder what's happened, what's gone wrong. There's sin in the camp. Someone has troubled Israel. And they go about finding out who it is that has troubled. And then twice in the same verse, this man, that word is attached to this man. They find out by the very same method that Saul is going to employ in verses 36 and following, 38 and following. This casting of lots. They find out who the troubler is. Well, we already know beforehand who the troubler is in the camp. My father has troubled the land. This oath is foolish, fasting before the battle. It would have been better for all the men to have eaten along the way because the victory has not been that big of a victory. Yeah, we chased them off, but they're going to rally over there and they'll be back. And the rest of the story indicates they were always back. They were never destroyed. So the army continues on, very faint and famished, until finally, probably as the sun sets, they pounce on the food. They pounce on these animals, and famished, exhausted, they do sin. They slaughter the animals, and slaughtering it on the ground rather than on a rock, mechanically they're not able to drain the blood out, and God had forbidden them to eat the blood, because the blood, you may recall, was where the life is found, and God owns the life, so they could not eat the blood. But they did anyway. So it's sin, for sure. But how the story's told, following right on the heels of, and the people were very faint, is meant, I think, to make us think of it, especially because this is all about Saul, meant to think of it like this. If you were to tell a story about how, man, last night, my 10-year-old picked a fight with his 8-year-old sister at 1.30 in the morning. They were fighting over the controls to the video game, for crying out loud. That kid is always picking a fight with his sister. Is that wrong? Absolutely. And your second question should be, what's he doing playing a video game with his sister at 1.30 in the morning? They both should be in bed. You, mom, dad, invited that. You set them up. So are, are they responsible for it? Sure. Sure, but nothing good happens after midnight, especially for 10-year-olds and 8-year-olds. And 20-year-olds and 18-year-olds. They are denied this all day. They are sent 20 miles across, up and down hills, fighting and chasing and running, very faint, exhausted, and finally the sun sets, ugh, and they sin. And without relieving the people, the text points us back to salt. He set him up. So he actually acts in a good way to solve that. He, he sets up a proper sacrifice system. He builds an altar. And there's a little hint of, in the sentence at the end of verse 35, the phrase at the end of verse 35, it's the first altar that he built to the Lord. It's possible that that's a little jab. Like Saul finally got around to building an altar to the Lord. It's possible. But anyway, he, set, he made an altar, which probably means that he sacrificed to atone for that sin. And after he deals with that problem, he's still once more fighting. And so he says, verse 36, let's go down at night and continue to attack them and try to wipe them out. We couldn't finish it in the day because of my oath, and now let's go after them at night. 
and the people, they're amenable to that. He's the king, after all. But the priest says, let's ask the Lord what he thinks. And so they stop and they ask, what should we do? And they hear from God, chirp of the crickets. Nothing. Which infuriates Saul because he's sure he knows why. This is just like back in Joshua 7. There is sin in the camp. Someone has troubled us and we are going to find out who that is. Even if it's my own son, he's going to die. So everybody come forward and he sets up by the casting of lots, by casting of lots. And the people, interestingly, is in verse the end of verse 39. Everybody just stands around quiet. Not a man answered him. You'd kind of see the group of guys just kind of... As the lots are cast, Jonathan and Saul are pulled aside. And then Jonathan's pulled aside. Saul says, what have you done? He explains it to him, how he ate some of the dripping honey. Here I am, I will die, which seems like a question of protest because of how Saul responds to it, a a reaffirming, yes, surely you will die. Seems like Jonathan is questioning the validity of this. Yes, surely you will die. For disobeying a command of Saul that he didn't even know about. At this point, we should say, my, how Saul has fallen. Because back at the beginning, if we were to look back at the chapter 10, when Saul first became king, and worthless fellows, it was said there, Worthless fellows refused to honor him as king. And some people said, we should kill these guys. Saul kept his peace. And then, after they fought the great victory to free the the Israelite city, and then the men again said, we should kill these guys now. He said, the Lord has won a great victory today. There will be no one put to death. The Lord has worked a great salvation in Israel. But on this day that the Lord has worked a great salvation in Israel, Saul, in hot anger, snubbed God and is willing to kill his own son who did nothing wrong. Saul's decline is accelerating. And it all seems likely that God directed the lot to fall on Jonathan. You might read this and say, why did God not steer the lot somewhere else? Maybe even on to Saul himself. I think for this purpose. For what happened in verse 45. Back in verse 39, the people are silent, kicking the rocks, looking down, not saying anything. In verse 45, yes, you shall surely die. The whole of the army says, time out. That's not going to happen. Something is greatly wrong. Before we'd stayed quiet, but here now as we're looking at this, the fact that you think he's the problem, he's the answer. He is the one who has worked salvation. He is the one with whom God worked to save today. And you think he's the problem? Not going to happen. And the effect of that is to show another separation of the people from Saul towards Jonathan. Here's the army now. You've got a king who's isolated from God, and you've got a king who's isolated from the army. 
as the army says, we're with Jonathan. Saul backs down. Story's over. And then we get verses 47 and following, which are a standard closing description of a king's reign. Very commonly, the king's reign comes to an end and he dies. You get a little bit of a summary of his military victories, a little bit of an analysis of his family. And here we have it, right here in verse 47. Saul actually is done. Here's the postscript. Now God did keep his word to Israel through Saul to use Saul to deliver the people from all their enemies. He was used mightily and and God used him to fight off and to hold at bay all these different enemies and attackers around the land. But it never actually ended. There was heavy fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. That doesn't get cleared up until someone else comes along. Point is, this is the end even though Saul's the main character of the very next chapter, and it goes on for decades. Saul really is done. Which completes the picture, the urging to us to not follow him. So I'm going to make two observations from this passage. Let me summarize them with this point. God's kingdom blessing falls on those who trust Him rather than trust what they do for Him. God's kingdom blessing falls on those who trust Him rather than trust what they do for Him. And the whole point of that is I'm trying to draw a line between trust Him and trust what they do for Him. Here's the first observation. I'm going to unpack those two basic points there. Two halves of that line. Here's the first point. Beware the trouble of Saul's religious approach to God. Here's the first observation that is really an exhortation and a warning. Beware the trouble of Saul's religious approach to God. Watch out for it. Be aware of falling into a pattern of living like him, of trying to draw near to God like Saul does in a mechanism of religious behavior and ritual as opposed to humble, patient faith. It's the two sides of the line. Religious behavior and mechanism as opposed to humble, patient faith. We start by noticing that the trouble that Saul's approach brings on the people and on himself. There are There are three elements to the trouble that's throughout this passage. They are troubled. That's the assessment in verse 29, you remember, in Jonathan's lips. He issues this oath, which is the driving incident in the whole chapter. He issues the oath, and Israel's brought into a troubled state because it's left famished and exhausted. You see that repeatedly, 24, 28, 31. And as a result, they are not able to win a great victory, not able to soundly drive off the Philistines, and not able to enjoy the bounty of the flowing honey. The oath kept the troops back and hurt them, and worse, drove them into sin, verse 31 and following. Of course, as I said, they bear some responsibility for that, but but we're set up to see it as started by Saul's folly. 
drives them into sin. And worse still, Saul's approach incites God to turn a deaf ear towards him and to withdraw from among his people. Saul asks for God's input finally. Doesn't hear anything. Because God doesn't speak. God's not there. Why would Saul do such a thing? I mean, if you think through, if you, if you line all that up and you say, why would Saul do something that so limits the fighting capacity of his army, so limits the victory he's going to win, leads them into sin, and drives God away? Why would he do that? And, and surely, obviously, part of it is he didn't realize what he was doing. He wasn't trying to do this. He didn't bring in this, all this trouble on purpose. So write this down. He wasn't trying to do this. I want to turn on that word this because right at that point we have to ask a question. What was he trying to do? Trying to do something. He wasn't trying to bring trouble, but he was trying to bring what? Favor. He's trying to bring divine blessing. He's trying to do something that will make God respond favorably in the battle against his enemies and avenge him. That's the whole point. God, we need you to step in here and do something. And to get you to do that, I know I will make an oath rest on the people and we will we'll fast. That'll be hard. So think about this. Saul is not trying to do something that brings trouble. He's trying to do something that will make God respond with favor. Something that involves sacrifice that's hard. And let me put a little sharper point of clarification on this. Something that Saul decided on, God never spoke of. And something that is in contrast, remember the last chapter, the last passage? Something that is in contrast to patient waiting to hear from God what he should do. This is the sermon. Saul sets out, he decides on what should be done. Not God. And he decided on it instead of a patient, faithful seeking of God. Instead of waiting for God to answer. He didn't have the patience for that. Once again, same story as Gilgal. And so instead he decided to earn God's favor by laying an oath on them. In the end it brings trouble. Why? Think about it. I mean, fasting's good, right? Fasting's biblical. Fasting is something that Christians should do. It's in the Old Testament. So why does that bring all of this trouble? Because of the context of it all. Saul decided to do it. And Saul's done it, doing it instead of the patient waiting in faith. And Saul's trying to earn God's favor with it. It is all opposite faith. It is a faith in what I will do. 
That's a critical divide. Faith in what God will do, whatever that may be, whenever that may be, whatever he may say it will be, or faith in what I will do, I will decide when I decide. That right there is audacious pride. And God is highly uninclined to cooperate with that. Do you see the pride in that? I want to set it up like that. Do you see the pride in that? I will wait on what God will do or I will trust in what I will do. You can see it in the moment when he says, take out the hand, I've got a better idea. We have seen pride growing in Saul. We see it salted all over this chapter even. I avenge my, to my enemies are avenged. When he blasts the people for their sin with his indignation about and determination to kill Jonathan, all the swearing of oaths. I mean, we see pride growing up in Saul. He's, he's changing. But it is most clear in the oath itself and what that says about his heart. Control of God and control of the relationship between man and God. And Christians, this, is, this does not live far from us. In fact, it lives everywhere in this world. It is behind every single religion except Christianity. It is officially behind every single religion. You realize there, you know, some people have said there are 10,000 religions in the world. I have no idea. I've never counted them all. But if there are 10,000 religions in the world, 9,999 9, of them are based on you do something and that makes God pleased so that he does something. That's how it all works, except for this one. So it's out there around everywhere, but it, it's within what goes by Christianity too. This is where we need to be more careful. We might, this can be, it can be blatant, but it can be very subtle. So think about this. We might be walking in Saul's footsteps whenever we think, I should go to church today. I should read my Bible. How can that be bad? We should go to church. We should read our Bibles. Absolutely, of course. This is the subtle part. Reading your Bible is good, of course. Praying is good, of course. Going to church. Unless somewhere in your thinking is something like this. Because if I don't, God won't be pleased with me and won't bless me. Or I'll have a bad day if I don't start it by giving God his time. Or the opposite. Because if I do, God will know I'm serious about him. And he responds to those who are serious. This is very subtle because you can do the right thing proudly for the wrong reasons. And you can turn what seems like a, a very solid, good Christianity into solistic worship. I know what I will do to make God respond to me with blessing. Or I'm thinking through... What have I done that has made God respond to me in a way that I don't like? I mean, I, I prayed that, you know, pick something. I prayed I'd get this job and I didn't get the job. What, what have I done wrong? 
You see the thinking there? I've done something wrong. Because if I'd done it right, he would have given me the job. Solistic. It walks the same halls where you and I walk. It's very subtle. The key to noticing, the key is noticing how good activity is being turned into a mechanism to please God in the hopes that he will then scratch my back. Careful with that. We often then think that the harder or more sacrifice, the better. I'll write a really big check. How often have you heard? I, I, I knew a guy who was wrestling through this. He was broke. And his main occupation involved, um, I'm not sure what you would call this sort of person, but it involved repeated new jobs. So he was a private contractor of sorts, but I don't want to mislead to say he worked with construction. Repeated new jobs. He just wasn't getting repeated new jobs. And when he got them, they were very small, and there just wasn't any income coming in. And he heard something on the radio, you can't outgive God. And it killed him. Because you know what he did? He started giving away every last cent he had. Killed his wife. Because they're broke, and her husband's giving away every last cent they have. Why is he doing that? Because in his mind is hidden back there, I can't outgive God. So if I give everything, like the widow giving her might, then surely God will respond to give me more than that. So I'll end up at least plus one. That's solistic. And perhaps we see it easily there. Do you see it in your own life? You see, we're using perhaps even something that's good, like going to church, reading your Bible, things that are even commanded. Fasting is a good thing. But where you're turning then to say, if then, we should instead rather go to church and read the Bible, believing that God will keep His Word and meet us in those places. I read the Bible to get God, not to get God to give me something else. The Bible is not a mechanism. The Bible is a location. That's what I mean by that. It's as if God hangs out in the Bible. It's a room over there. Are you thinking, I go to that room to get him to give me a new car, or I go to that room because that's where God is, and I want to hang out with God? The latter's faith, the first is solism. It's religion. It's a pulling of a religious lever to make my life work, empowered by this God that I have figured out how to manipulate. Beware of that. There's so much pride in it. And I think, though this passage doesn't hint at it, in my mind as I thought about this, I, I kind of moved back a little bit to the previous chapter because this is all kind of one big event. The dominant emotion in Saul in the previous chapter was what? Do you remember? Fear. So I think when we work with God like this, we have sometimes 
a pride thing that, that is very, um, very pronounced and shows up as anger. You may see a lot, of, a lot of rashness in Saul here. But fear is pride in more gentle clothing. Because it looks like I have to figure out how to get a solution to this thing right now because the problem is, ah, and wait is not a viable answer. So I'm going to be very tempted to run to my Bible and say, well, I know I'm supposed to pray, and I'm supposed to give, I know I'm supposed to go to church, and I'm supposed to be... I'll do all those things, and if I do those things, then he'll respond. I think it's maybe more likely that he won't, because he doesn't want to teach you that he works like that, that he's at your beck and call. And when the Israelites tried that most prominently with the ark, God just said, I won't come. When Saul tries that, God says, I won't answer. So Christians, beware of approaching God or attempting to approach God like Saul does through this this folly of, of a religious activity that is really just a lever being pulled to make him do what I want him to do when I want him to do it. That's how Saul increasingly interacts with God and it becomes more and more clear. And it also is crystal clear that God says, I'm done with that. We don't need a king like that. What we need is a king who will lead us to grow in faith so that we can properly honor God and fully enjoy Him. And that's what leads us to the second observation. The king that we need leads us to God's blessing, the place we're trying to get, by faith. The king that we need, and thankfully the one that God has provided, is the one that leads us to God's blessing by faith. That's what pleases God. We see that king modeled in chapter 14 as well as in chapter 13. These two chapters are setting up a contrast of two men. Who are they? Saul and Jonathan. The two chapters are holding up a contrast and increasingly dividing them and showing us everybody thought Saul is the answer. And by the end, everybody realizes, not Saul. Maybe it's Jonathan. We need somebody else other than Saul. We need Jonathan. And we're all supposed to be standing by the end of this in verse 45 saying, this one is the answer, but we know he's not the answer because he can't be king. It's got to be somebody else. Somebody who, like Jonathan, is free of pride and impatience towards God, but is willing to step forward in faith, to trust Him. That's the kind of king He has provided for us in Jesus. It's always going back to Jesus. Always. We said this morning in the class, there's a a book that I read a long time ago and like page 300-something in one of the footnotes about preaching. It said the Christian preacher must preach Jesus because there is no other message from God. 
which is a profound statement when you read 1 Samuel 14. And J-E-S-U-S or C-H-R-I-S-T is not in the text anywhere. But there is no other message from God. There's a message from God here, though, that says, here's the king that everybody demands. And the king, you recall judges, we need a king to set us straight, to call us into righteousness and join us to God. Not that one. Who is it? That right there, that little vacuum that's created right there is what leads us very quickly. You just flip over in your Bible. You've got a heading probably above chapter 16. A guy named David is coming. It's leading us along the path to the one who is the answer, who leads us into the fullness of God's blessing and does so by faith. Christ is the faithful king who sets up a kingdom that functions by faith, not religious mechanism, who calls the people to him by faith alone and who grows them by faith alone and who will deliver to us a taste of the flowing honey now, but one day all the fullness, all that you can handle. This, this one, this, this glorious king is the one who himself drew near to his father in faith. Talked about this a little bit last week. He's the one who himself went forward into battle alone and faced insurmountable, unlikely odds. He looked at a world that cursed him and mocked him and looked at a cross, looked at its shame, looked at its death, looked at the wrath of God in a cup in front of him as the Father's face turned away and said, I believe. Even when the first nail went in, and the second, and the third, even when he was hoisted up, even when they mocked him and he contemplated, maybe I should call down a myriad of angels from heaven. That would not be hard. But he believed that the Father would not let his soul see decay. He would come and live forever in the land of the living. He believed, and the Father vindicated him and brought him out of the grave and made him a father, a, a king then, over a people who likewise draw near to the Father in faith. That's what the kingdom is about. And every activity or endeavor or behavior, everything that looks like a, an, an action or a work, necessary. Do not for a minute misunderstand me to say reading your Bible is optional. Go back. If Jesus is in that room over there, you never go there, you won't grow. It's necessary. All that stuff, everything that you can think of, given in the Bible, commanded, obedience is necessary, holiness is necessary. But at the bottom of it all is this Faith. Why? There are some Christians, well-meaning Christians, I I didn't mean this to be critical, but I mean to make a point. I think they are mistaken. There are some Christians who elevate love to be the, the highest, the highest virtue. I am not for a minute denying love. Not for a minute. We could put other 
virtues, uh, holiness, obedience, generosity. Faith is beneath them all, or if you like, above them all. Faith is primary. Because, think about this. Paul says the only thing that counts is faith working itself out in love, which comes first, the faith. Paul says the beginning of Romans and the end of Romans both. He's after obedience. But what is it? It's the obedience of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is at the core because faith is that response in us. And here I'm back to the divide. Faith is is that response in us that says, I look at what I do and what you do, and I'm embracing what you do. Now, of course, we can use faith to describe the other, of course, but I'm talking biblical faith is, of course, faith in God. I look at what God does in Christ, and I look at what I do, and I will hold to what God does in Christ. That is why faith is foundational. Faith is fundamental. We are saved by grace through faith, not grace through love, not grace through obedience. Grace through faith. Because God graciously gives us insight into what God has done for us in Christ, and we see that suddenly as glory. Because I couldn't. Me, I was left trying to be good enough and obedient enough and loving enough, and the law says death. But I see by the grace of God what He has done in Christ to remove off of me the guilt, to take unto Himself the wrath. And I see it as glory. And I grab hold of it with nothing else in my hands. That is faith in Christ and in Christ crucified. That's how the kingdom works. And that's the way that we walk through the kingdom day by day by day by day by day. By faith. It means we're not to be obedient. Absolutely not. It's the obedience of faith. It's faith that says, I believe that on the other side of this, what looks like a really difficult, really difficult decision, I believe that on the other side of this obedience, God will meet me in grace because that's the kind of God He is for His people. And so I will obey and walk forward. Faith drives the obedience. means we don't have to love? Absolutely not. It means that when I face somebody who is highly unlovely, And I can be highly unlovely. When I face somebody like that, you face somebody like that, I look at that and say, the loss, the risk that it will take for me to be vulnerable, to be giving, to be open, to to, to extend a helping hand to this person, to have it cut off, that loss will be made good by my God. I believe it. Faith works out in love. Faith is at the core. Christian. He has given you a king who became your king by faith, who drew you into his kingdom by grace through faith, and who means for you to walk with him, meet him, enjoy him and his blessing by faith that works itself out then in love and obedience in every moment of the day. 
That's what He wants to build in you. And how does He do it? Well, to slightly alter the context of what Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. He's talking about gospel proclamation. He uses the word gospel and good news three times right before that. So he's got an evangelistic context there. But the same truth still is true. That as we hear what the gospel is, as we hear it, the Spirit of God who gave the gospel then uses that to grow in us the eye opening that we need and the believing that we need. We do not conjure up our own belief. It is a gift that comes by hearing. So you go to the room where Jesus is, the Bible. You go to the room where Jesus is, prayer. You go to the room where Jesus is, church, fellowship of the Christians. Those are the ordinary means. You go there and you say, Spirit of God, come. I believe that you meet me and show me Christ here and that stirs in me a comprehension of His glory and I trust Him and I need that desperately help. And you read. You pray. Whatever it is you're doing. May God fall on His people and move you. Move you to move towards Him by faith in what He has done, not by faith in what you do. That's not biblical faith, of course. Not by religion. Not by superstition or, or a mechanistic working of behaviors. But by trusting Him, may He move you. I'm going to pray and then give us a couple minutes for you to think about that before we close the song. Lord, do a work in Your people. Meet them now, I pray. Call them to Yourself. Convict them of Your trustworthiness so that they trust You. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.